begin in reading Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I shake him. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and thank you, Sandy. That's great. Oh, you're fine. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. Excuse me while I grab mine from the front seat. I, uh, I don't know if it's just me or if I have, I just have a big head. The skeletons have big heads. My, my wife knows that all of our kids have big heads. But I popped now three, I think three of these <laughs> this morning. What a weird time. All the weird challenges that we're having to face. Masks and everything. So thank you guys for, again, for those who are... Uh, um, joining us here in person. It's just so good to see your faces. It really, really is. And uh, I, we were, I was just celebrating with a brother this morning. God made for us to be together. And that's why times like this feel so strange. They should feel strange. They should feel like we're hobbling on a broken leg the longer we're away from God's people. And for those of you who are joining us online, just this is an act of love for you. We want you to be able to worship with us. And it's okay that this feels different. We would pray that you wouldn't embrace this as a new normal at all. This is, God means for you to be with his people, but even for now, it may be wise for you to remain away. Pray for the day where we can gather in person. And uh, it's our joy to serve you in in this way until then. But I want to encourage you again to uh, um, uh, keep your Bibles open to Psalm 13 as we unpack it. Before we go there, um, I want to... uh, ask you, can we, can we thank John Christensen this morning for serving us well last week? Can we give him a round of applause? So one of our, if you were not with us last week, we had the privilege of hearing from one of our deacons, um, one, of our, uh, um, uh, one of our leaders here at Bayless um, from Psalm chapter 12, and he, didn't he do an excellent job unpacking God's word for us? Many of you, you're not surprised by this. John has been such a faithful Bible teacher here for years um, and John, I want you to know I've learned so much from your insight as a brother um, and uh, into God's word, your humility and your desire to, to honor Jesus. I, I have, John, I, I have, um, I think we would say this as well. It, what was so, what's so clear when you're preaching and teaching is not just that we understand what God says, but you want us to respond with joy and faithfulness. You ask us some very powerful questions, very convicting questions, even for uh, um, me as a pastor. And we praise God for you. We're going to be, um, yeah, we're very grateful for the, uh, caring for us in that way. We're going to be in the next chapter in the book of Psalms today. And uh, we're walking through the Psalms uh, this summer over the next several weeks um, as we uh, plan to do for many summers to come. There's 150 chapters in the book of Psalms, so we're going to be here for a while, folks. Um, but uh, Psalm, I, I, one of the reasons we're doing this is because it teaches us how to talk to God. Um, let me ask you again, what, what do you, how would you describe the book of Psalms if someone asked you? Would you say that it is? It's, it's different than really any other book in the Bible. What are we reading when we 
crack this book that isn't technically the longest book in your Bible, but it by far has the most chapters in your Bible. This book that has been loved and read by generations of God's people, including Jesus himself, who quoted from the book of Psalms more than he quoted from any other book, seems to identify with the psalmists, the speakers in these psalms, perhaps more than other books in the Bible. Well, what we're reading in the book of Psalms is a book of prayers, prayers that were sung by God's people. Think about the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. They're, they're meant to teach us about God. In fact, we, we intentionally choose our songs in such a way that we, uh, you would be learning rich things about God's nature and character, even if I never came up and gave the sermon. That we're learning from songs. But these songs are also giving us words to speak back to God. They're words of prayer. And this prayer book, again, has been loved by God's people for thousands of years, including Jesus. It may make sense to us when authors are saying things like, O Lord, how, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We love these psalms of praise. They make sense for us. We might even have a category for psalms like the one John preached on in Psalm chapter 12 when it says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one has gone. But then what do we do with psalms like Psalm chapter 13? You've heard it read already a couple times, but look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Needlepoint that on a pillow. I've been raised in the church by God's grace. I realize that's, a, that's not everyone's story. I've been around churches most of my life. I've been pastoring now for years, and I've heard lots of prayers in my life. But I don't know many that sounded like this one. Have you heard prayers like this? Do you pray like this when you talk to God? I suspect few of us have. We even those of us who talk to God frequently would general, tr generally try to avoid the things that David says, wouldn't we? we, we it sounds at l the very least rude, at the very worst faithless. Surely no one who trusts God talks to him like this, right? Friends, it may surprise you to hear this, but I think the prayer we are observing here today is actually a prayer of faith. A, a, a kind of prayer that expresses faith, even in the questions that it asks. But more importantly, I think this kind of prayer deepens faith. I hope you will keep your Bibles open again to Psalm chapter 13 as we look at this prayer in two parts. Number one, when faith doubts the startling questions of deep faith. And number two, when doubt doubts the startling assurance of deep faith. Let's look at this first part. When faith doubts, the startling questions of deep faith. One of the things I find immensely interesting is how values shift and change from generation to generation. Some of you may not find this interesting, you find it frustrating. But I find it very interesting. I remember the very first time uh, I preached a sermon what a train wreck. Actually, it wasn't too bad, but it was a, a terribly insecure experience for me. 
Um, I, uh, I, I did so as a pastoral intern um, at my wife's home church, the church that her dad actually pastors, right after as, a, uh, as uh, I just married his daughter. Talk about a brave experience. Now being my father-in-law's pastoral intern, but it was a really great experience. But again, very insecure one as I'm preaching this first sermon. And I have to t- I, I'm pretty sure that it was over an hour, which doesn't surprise many of you who know me very well. Uh, after I got off the stage, a kind older woman pulled me aside to thank me for preaching that morning, but also to point out that she had a really hard time hearing anything that I said. Why? Because I was wearing flip-flops behind the pulpit. I realize some of you are pretty shocked that a, a pastor like myself, even a pastoral intern, would have had the audacity to wear sandals as he preached. This may even move me down a little bit in terms of credibility with you, but some of you, how, how a pastor dresses, it communicates reverence. It communicates seriousness. It com- communicates respect for the words that we've been given. Sandals are for the lake, maybe yard work, not for worship. And I might as well have been preaching naked. Now, I can honestly say that what kind of footwear I wore when I preached was the very last thing on my mind, nor was I thinking about what it communicated to anyone in that room. But isn't it interesting that those in my generation and younger, generally speaking, not everyone, they they care very little about having a well-dressed pastor. In fact, for many, the pastor in the three-piece suit, the three-piece suit is the turnoff. Why? Well, I think... Many have grown up in homes where certain things were private, certain things looked better than they were, certain things were off-limits, family matters, not spoken of, certain things were better not to bring out into public view, it was better to wave from the front lawn, to smile as you pulled into that garage, then let, it was better than to let other people see the really ugly things that were waiting inside. Some of us even grew up in religious settings where everyone looked dressed up on a Sunday morning, looked polished and put together in the pew until you got in the car and the gloves really did come off. We acted like we were supposed to. We went along with traditions while frightening things went unseen in the dark. In an age of weekly conspiracies, nightly scandals, and the Me Too movement, we want transparency. We want someone who isn't pretending. We want something authentic and honest. One of the things I love about the Bible is how transparent it is about what it is really like to live in the world that we do. This isn't the Hallmark Channel. It asks, we we ask questions. um, The Bible asks questions many of us don't feel like we have the permission to ask. It presents authentic faith, in fact, as sometimes mixed with a great measure of doubt. How else would you describe verses 1 and 2? Like many of the Psalms, Psalm 13 assumes that there are times when the suffering just will not let up, when the suffering will be absolutely more than you can bear and have no explanation. The real issue for David isn't the suffering though, is it? It is where God seems to be in the midst of it all. Those of you who have lived longer than I can probably give account after account of sufferings you have faced that seem to have no explanation. Chronic illness, 
sudden loss of a loved one. David is experiencing what so many of us have experienced and perhaps even now are experiencing. Makes me think of a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you know C.S. Lewis, he was this great defender of the Christian faith, able to put things in a way that no one else had been able to, to make sense of the gospel to his times and generations in which it has influenced us years later. He's answered many questions for us, but I want us to hear some of the questions C.S. Lewis himself asked in a book called A Grief Observed, in which he mourned the passing of his wife. Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it even inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so, so present a commander in our times of prosperity and so very absent in a, time, a help in a time of trouble? Lewis, like David, experienced the emphatic silence of God. It's as if God had forgotten him as if God was hiding. There is no greater despair than to be at the end of yourself and to feel as if even God has deserted you. What about you? As verse two puts it, do you know what it is like to lay awake at night, taking counsel in your soul, tossed around in a storm of difficult questions? And certain, some of us here know what it's like to carry sorrow in your heart day after day, afraid to sleep the sleep of death, as verse 3 says. That phrase, the sleep of death, may be a metaphor, not of death itself, but for depression and grief. We wonder if our knees will finally buckle under the load without any psychological or spiritual reserve left, fearing that we might finally lose all confidence in God. Now, I don't know that I would say this psalm is teaching us necessarily to speak this exact way when we are suffering, as much as it's honestly revealing what happens to us when suffering hits. What it sounds like for even a woman or man of faith to be battered by waves of pain. What it sounds like even for a follower of Jesus Christ to doubt. As counselor and Bible teacher Paul David Tripp points out, like fear, doubt is not in and of itself a bad thing. God has given us the ability to wonder and the desire to know and understand he has wired, us in, wired into us the quest to have our questions answered and our confusion cleared up. He created in us an intolerance of irrationality and contradiction. Doubt can cause you to ask profoundly important questions, 
Doubt will make you think deeply about very important things. Doubt will allow you to expose and reject falsehood. Doubt can ignite a life that is reasoned, wise, and protective. Doubt can keep you from being all too naive or an easy target for deception because doubt drives us to know and understand. It has the power to lead you to the one who knows and understands everything. Your capacity to doubt can drive you to God, but not always. This is why we need to talk about doubt, because this God-given capacity, Tripp says, wrongly functioning can be disastrous. So that's this point. Again, I think it's weird, perhaps, to hear about a pastor saying that doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's because in the Bible we find two different kinds of doubt. You might call them faithless doubt and faithful doubt. This first kind, faithless doubt, let's talk about that. This is what Paul David Tripp calls, again, this counselor and Bible teacher, a a disastrous kind. This kind of doubt interprets suffering as proof that God cannot be trusted Heartache, loss, betrayal, loneliness feed a growing bitterness. Faithless doubt stops wondering what God must be up to and instead turns and shakes its fist at God. At one point in his grief, C.S. Lewis admitted that he feared this very kind of doubt coming over him. C.S. Lewis says, "I, I am not in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is the kind of doubt that C.S. Lewis kept back, feared coming over him. We may not realize is that C.S. Lewis wrote this after publishing a different book called The Problem of Pain, in which he defended God's goodness and suffering for others. All of this theological reflection, even his limited experience with pain, it's interesting, still did not prepare him to experience this kind of grief himself. Even C.S. Lewis faced questions he could not himself answer, and I fear time may come where you, even I, will be left wondering if God has forgotten us. Standing at the edge of unbelief looking down, I fear some of us are already there, at least functionally. Some of us may say that we trust God, but when the heat turns up, it's not God we run to for help, is it? We're not actually convinced that God loves us and is with us in our suffering. Instead, we have allowed our suffering to teach us the very opposite. Our suffering has taught us to go somewhere else for comfort, Some of us have given up on God without even realizing it. One of the signs of this, friends, that this has happened in our lives is prayerlessness. In prayerlessness, we hear the haunting of faithless doubt. We hear a soul that has coached itself, taught itself in its suffering that God cannot be trusted As Paul David Tripp puts it, some of you may need to ask yourself, what has suffering done to my theology or what I believe about God? What has suffering 
done to the way I view God and his presence, his promises, and his power? Do I still believe that God is the definition of what is loving, good, wise, and true? Christians, if you are a Christian, we have an enemy that wants to feed faithless doubt in you and for it to happen without you even realizing it. There's a kind of doubt that unconsciously even turns and shakes its fists at God before it turns from him entirely. But there is a second kind of doubt, faithful doubt. A kind of doubt that instead, in the midst of doubt, turns to God himself. Which, and it's, it's a, we might call this again, um, in verse 5 and 6, we might say this faith, faithful doubt is evidenced even in David's questions. Why? Because of how David goes about expressing this doubt. Let me just remind ourselves, what is Psalm 13? It's a prayer, an appeal to God which even when mingled with doubt, as it is here, presses into the presence of God. The tone of these first verses are full of passion, desperation, maybe maybe even anger. We shouldn't read these as if David is, is pondering suffering from the outside. They are a scream to the heavens, help me! That cry, where is it directed? Toward God. Even while David feels God has forgotten, he pleads with God to consider. We need to clarify here again. When David says, have you forgotten me? He doesn't mean that God has stopped being all-knowing. For, 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 uh, to be forgotten is the same as to experience distance in a relationship. To be forgotten is the, same, is the opposite we see when it says that God knew someone. He drew near them. Or God remembered. It's not that God had forgotten their suffering, but he, that, that memory causes him to go to action. To be forgotten is to fear God's inaction, to experience God's, that God does not feel close and God is not acting on my behalf. It doesn't mean that God is unaware, but nonetheless, even as he feels that God has forgotten, he pleads with God to consider. Even while he wonders how God could be hidden, he asks for God to answer. Even while he knows only sorrow, he pleads with God to brighten his eyes. We may not realize this, but David's startling questions, in fact, demonstrate an even deeper confidence in God. At least in some measure, David believes that God cares, that God knows what to do, and that God is powerful to do it. If not, why bother asking? If we really believe that God is good, that he is wise, just, and powerful, the volume will turn up on our prayers, especially when we do not see it in our experience. We want to know and to believe that God is as he's revealed himself. And until we see it in our everyday, we cry out, how long? To give up on prayer, on this kind of prayer, is to give up hope entirely. It is to sink into disbelief. Resigned indifference may not be a sign of faith. It may be a cover for the opposite. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is Job, who was robbed of his family, his wealth, and even his physical health, all within the first two chapters of his book. Then for nearly 40 chapters more, argues and wrestles with God over his pain. 
He was given every reason to do as his wife said, curse God and die. Don't give that counsel to your spouse when they're suffering. Great support. Yet he he refuses to let up from the throne of mercy. You might say it is precisely because he is so confident in God's character that he is confused by his circumstances. And so he pleads, even questions, not out of disrespect or unbelief, but out of faith. God's ways do confuse us, friends. What is good and right and just does not always look so from our vantage point, does it? God seems to break his promise sometimes, even as he is delivering it. Sometimes we feel like a child whose parents tell them, you'll thank me when you're older. As Tripp puts it, because of this, at the street level, the life of faith is always a struggle of trust. In this struggle of trust, you will be left with questions about what God is doing. If the doubt of wondering causes you to come to God with sincere questions, asking is an act of faith. You're not rebelling against him. You're not running from him. You're not demanding answers, but crying out of your confusion for the help that only he can give. The doubt of wonderment is a normal part of the healthy life of faith. God won't always make sense to you. And when he doesn't, bringing your doubts to him is a good thing. Barnabas Piper puts it this way. Questions are the conversational currency of a child. Every question is is asked to learn out of a desire to understand from a stance of trust. Children ask not to challenge but in order to believe. That's a big part of what faith like a child means. Friends, bring your confusion to the one who has none. This leads to the turning point of our psalm. When doubt doubts the startling confidence of deep faith. I remember a conversation years ago with a neighbor of mine Uh, who at the time openly called himself an atheist. Um, We had several friendly, though lively, conversations about Christianity over the years, uh, usually in the hall or in my car. But one in particular I'll never forget about the nature of faith. As my friend put it, he found the very idea of faith to be utterly ridiculous. Faith enabled religious people to justify the unjustifiable, to ignore what was plainly in front of them, to trust in their liver liver shivers and their warm fuzzies over hard facts and common sense. Faith, he said, was blindness, and as a man of reason, he would not, could not leave his brain at the door. It makes sense that he saw faith, he saw it this way, After all, think of how often we use the phrase, blind faith. The thing is, that's actually not a biblical definition of faith. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is not the power of positivity. The faith is not a holy hoping for the best. Faith for David and for the rest of the authors of the Bible is reasoned, 
deliberate, careful thought on something more concrete than their own circumstances. It locks in on something which enables me to doubt my own doubt. Faith is the assurance of something unassailable, actually two things, who God is and what God will do. Start with that first, who God is. Look at verse 5 with me. What does he say? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is not broken off from the first part. He didn't switch personalities. You don't see a chapter break. The same person who says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, says... But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Can I geek out with you for a second? So steadfast love is, this, is a Hebrew word called hesed. Okay, so this, I'm not going to quiz you on that later. But nonetheless, this is a word much bigger than our English word can get at. It, it is more committed than a parent's affection. This steadfast love is more intense than a new romance. It's more enduring than the longest marriage Sally Lloyd-Jones gets closer when she calls this God's never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A love that knows it all, that has seen it all, and stays. It would be one thing to claim this love in theory, but David knew this kind of steadfast love in reality. He knew this love from experience and, guess what, from this book. This unfading, unfaltering, unbreaking love, he he knew it with a kind of confidence that only comes after his own great failure, his people's failure over and over again. He could confess that this love truly, as he read about his people and he saw his own heart, this love had seen it all. It knew it all and it stayed. This assurance allowed him to see past his own circumstance because it was locked in on God's character like a ship that sees a lighthouse in a storm, like a child grips a parent's hand through a crowd. This God who had given every reason for him to trust could be trusted again. I love how Barnabas Piper puts it. Trust in God stems from understanding his character, not his reasons. Let me say that again. Trust in God stems from understanding his character, not his reasons. Faith locks in on who God is. Second, what God will do. Notice the second half of verse 5. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's hard not to read salvation and think uh, heaven or forgiveness. And certainly we should. Those are, those are un, uh, non-negotiable parts of salvation. But salvation actually means something far more. God's salvation is nothing less than the answer of every need, the fixing of everything broken, the resolution of every promise, the wiping of every tear, the comfort for every sorrow, the end of every injustice. Salvation refers to nothing less than the whole well-being of those who are loved by him as they are delivered to him forever. Even as David wonders if his suffering might be forever, he reminds himself something forever is coming and it exceeds what he could ever ask for. 
This assurance was so real for David, in fact. Notice this, that he could praise God in the middle of his own suffering. It's so interesting that Christians so often are saying God's praises loudest when they have tears on their faces. To experience sadness and deep joy are not in conflict. Even as David, again, wonders if his suffering might be forever, he knows that something on the horizon is forever. And it will come to him because he sees both what is true today and what is on the horizon, he could praise God before God shows up. And in the end, it is not God who he doubts, but his own doubt that he doubts. How little David knew, of course, of what he spoke of. How little David knew about what the Christian would hear when we hear those words today. You see, in Jesus, Christians have an even richer assurance in suffering, a more concrete reason to doubt our own doubts. Because in Jesus, we see not only one who has firsthand experience of what it feels like to be abandoned, but to be actually abandoned in his death on the cross. The gospel writers tell us that some of Jesus' final words, words include a rather startling scream. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know Jesus is actually quoting another psalm? A psalm even more intense than this one that we will look at probably next year. Psalm 22, which seems to be on the forefront of Jesus' mind, even as he's carrying his own cross, refreshing his mind in it in these final hours This kind of punishment, Jesus' death, God's abandonment, was only reserved in the Bible for the most wicked, for those who would forget God, who would finally reject him. It is the very reason that the psalmist cries out so confused, and yet Jesus had even more reason to cry. The one who trusted in God completely was abandoned by God completely. His screams to the sky received no answer. Why? Because God had forgotten him? Because God had forgotten us? No. Because God considered us. Because God answered this prayer. Because he is determined to lift up our eyes. Jesus faced the silence of God. He slept the sleep of death. He was prevailed over by his enemies So that in the end, when he rose from that tomb, when he left it behind empty, we would never know the same. We would never know that final silence. We would never know that final sleep of death. We would never, no no longer in the end, be prevailed over by our enemies. That the one who would hope in him might only know steadfast love forever. That the Lord might deal bountifully with me. Friend, you may be carrying a whole heap of doubts with you today, but a bitter life need not make you a bitter person. The gospel is the answer of God in the midst of enduring doubts. It answers the question, can God be trusted? Will you forget me forever? The gospel is the one answer that allows us to come to terms with all of our I don't knows. 
And I have to tell you, as a pastor, I give those out a lot. It is the best answer. The gospel is the best answer we have to doubt our doubts. It may not extinguish them. It may not even take the edge off of them. But the gospel gives us every reason to trust his steadfast love one day more. And the next day. And the next day. As Edward Mote, a hymn writer, once put it in a song that we sing. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. One final thing I want to say before we wrap up today is that this psalm not only helps us to navigate our own doubts, it helps us to love others in the midst of theirs as well. Uh, I have to tell you one of the things that, again, we're talking about generational differences. You know what's a marker of my generation is we face doubt more than ever before. We are in times in which it is less and less common to confess Jesus Christ, less and less common for it to be a benefit to us in society. My generation and generation younger are finding what, that following Christ in obedience really does feel like death sometimes as we're surrounded with people who believe the very opposite and who tell us that our beliefs are the very poison that is infecting the world. So often, a Christian, like a Christian who is of my age or younger, believing God will, take, will feel like it's a daily battle. Like it takes, like you have to reconvince yourself one more day that this is true and good. You know what we need for those changing times? You know what we need for these new circumstances? We need a church that loves well. A church that is open and honest. A place where we can help them work through their questions and doubts as we work through them too. As we point to the work and person of Jesus Christ, as we open and see what has God said that is more concrete than my own circumstances. As we are not scared off, nor do we silence uncomfortable questions and doubts but we were the first to hear them with compassion and expect that God would give comfort and God would give one supreme answer. Let me ask you, would others say that they can be uncomfortably honest with you? Are you eager to understand people before you are understood? Are you okay with saying, I don't know, but would you like to find out with me what God says together? Do others hear you pray through your own pain? Do they see honesty from you? Or do they see pretending? Do they see you rest in the gospel even in the midst of your own I don't knows? I'm convinced that only the Christian can pray this kind of prayer, which is as honest as it is full of hope, and I'm convinced it's one of the best arguments we can make for the gospel itself. But even if hope feels impossible today, I want to encourage you to let others shoulder your sorrows with you. If you are not a Christian, and yet any part of you wants to believe that God can be trusted, that he really does have good in store for you, that a day is coming when you will be able to say, I, I knew I could trust you. 
If any part of you wants to believe that perhaps, if if any part of you wants to believe all of this, perhaps you have begun to doubt your own doubts without even realizing it. Stick around. Pull on that thread. Work it out with others here. Don't let up from the throne of grace. This God who pursues is chasing you. Friends, would you join with me as David does in prayer? Lord, we confess that there are some times where darkness does seem to hide your face. We know that that's not actually true. We, you know, Christians, we, we re, we, one of the reasons we read the Bible as you've instructed us to do is because we experience what so many others did like David, and yet we we struggle to have the same hope. We struggle to find our own turning point, to doubt our own doubts. Thank you that you see us, you understand, you don't stiff arm us. Not only can you handle our questions, you ask for us to bring them to you as an act of faith. We know a day is coming where we will see that how you deal with us now is how we would have dealt if we knew what we, you did. How limited our eyes, our perspective, how great is your wisdom. Would this church be a place that helps us endure with joy and sets its sights on the gospel and on Christ himself who is the answer to our questions about your trustworthy, lovely, your powerful beauty. The proof to us that you are a God who is good and will be good to us. We rest in your unchanging grace. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.